0: today. You will anoint him, you will bless him, you will help him to speak with holy conviction and with boldness, whatever you are laid upon his heart, Lord. And we pray for ourselves. Give us ears that hear and hearts that discern, Lord. We want to be wise. We want to do what your word says, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Give me a second, let me get the clicker. From dog to fish, Pastor Benny Ho once um, told a story of a, of a pastor who went fishing and um, sorry, let me get myself organized. When, when the pastor went to this fishing spot, there was an old man who was also fishing there. After a while, the pastor began to notice a strange thing that the old man was doing. The old man would catch a fish, measure it against a stick, and if the fish is shorter than the stick, he will keep it. But if the fish is longer than the stick, he will throw it back into the sea. And after a while, the the pastor could not take it anymore. So he went up to the old man and said, Sir, why are you doing this? Why do you throw the fish back if it's longer than your stick? The old man replied, oh, it's, it's very simple. You see, I have a 7-inch frying pan at home. If the fish is longer than 7 inches, Oh, it's working again. Good. There are many Christians who who have a seven-inch frying pan kind of faith. In other words, if they encounter anything that they cannot rationalise or explain, they simply throw it out. They hold on to their prejudices and wrong ideas of things, of people, sometimes even of God himself. And Jonah was like that. He had a problem. He had a problem with God's compassion and thought that love was incompatible with justice. And he concluded that God was too soft on the people of Nineveh. Let's recap very quickly the story of Jonah, chapter 1 to 2. Most of us are very familiar with it, but Um, just for the sake of completeness, let me run through it very quickly. Jonah was a prophet at the time of this guy called Jeroboam II, who was the king of the northern kingdom. And he's one of the so-called minor prophets in the Old Testament. He's minor not because he's unimportant, but because his book is very short. And Jonah was a prophet not because he's super holy or ultra spiritual. In fact, he was anything but that. He was a prophet simply because God called him to preach his message of judgment to the Assyrian city of Nineveh because of his wickedness. But Jonah refused to obey and he runs away, taking a ship from Joppa to a port called Tarshish in Spain at the other end of the known world at that time. And en route there, the ship encountered a violent storm so bad that the sailors feared for their lives. And after some investigation, the sailors discovered that Jonah was the guilty one because he disobeyed the God of Hebrews, the God of heaven. And so they threw him overboard in what they thought was an act of appeasement to make this God happy. And the sea therefore became calm after that. But as he was drowning, Jonah was swallowed by a giant sea creature. I don't know whether it looks like that. Uh, Some people say it's a kind of a sperm whale. Uh, and whatever it was, in the belly of this sea creature, Jonah prayed and God showed mercy to him. And the whale or the creature ejected Jonah onto dry land. And so our story continues in Jonah chapter 3 and 4. Jonah, God calls Jonah a second time and tells him to go back to Nineveh, the place that Jonah ran away from, and carry the same message of judgment. Nineveh was located on the east bank of the Tigris River about fifty miles from a place called Samaria, which is the capital city of the northern kingdom that Jeroboam II was the king. Nineveh was large and was protected by an outer wall and an inner wall. If you believe that this picture represents what it's supposed to be at that time. The inner wall was 50 feet wide and 100 feet high. This time, Jonah obeys God and walking through the city, he proclaims judgment. The king of this city And the city itself, the people in the city, began to repent. Archaeologists and historians tell us that before Jonah arrived at this fortress city, this impregnable fortress city, two plagues erupted there in 765 BC and in 759 BC. And not only that, there was a total eclipse of the sun on June 15, 763 BC. So the Ninevites, the people of Nineveh, must have considered that these occurrences were signs of divine anger. And that may help to explain why the Ninevites responded so readily to Jonah's message. But despite the people and the king repenting, and if you read the Bible, it says that they were in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, it was a sign of mourning, a sign of repentance. There was no evidence in the Bible that the Ninevites actually got rid of all their idols or or they replaced their gods with the worship of Jehovah God, the God of the Israelites. In fact, later prophets, Prophet Nahum and Prophet Zephaniah predicted 150 years after Jonah that Nineveh would indeed be destroyed. A combined force of the Persians, the Babylonians and the Scythians actually laid siege to the city. The city was plundered and the king perished in the flames although his family escaped. And the city became a heap of desolate ruin, which it still is today, but that's 150 years later. For now, God spares the city and relents of the judgment on Nineveh, the judgment which Jonah proclaimed to the people. But, but, Jonah gets upset and wants to die. Why was Jonah angry? One interpretation was that Jonah was angry because the Lord, God, has so easily given in or capitulated to the tactics of these pagan people, these Ninevites, to appease him. The Ninevites just fasted, put on sackcloth as an outward sign of repentance, and lo and behold, God withdraws his punishment despite all the wickedness that the Ninevites had done. One moment of repentance can wipe out a lifetime of guilt and evil and sin. So not fair. So not fair, God. This is so not fair. So Jonah was embarrassed. He was embarrassed and he was scandalised that this Jehovah God should offer compassion so easily. For this suggests that Jehovah was weak and could be easily bought. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Chapter 4, verse 1. And it, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. So what did Jonah do? He leaves the city, he finds a spot outside, builds a temporary shelter and he sits there sulking sulking, maybe waiting 40 days because there was a judgment, the message which God told Jonah to proclaim. 40 days and judgment will come. So maybe he waited 40 days to see if God would change his mind again and still destroy the city as his message, Jonah's message said. He would. Unfortunately for Jonah, there was no earthquake, there was no fire, there was no enemy invasion, there was no plague. Jonah waited and waited and waited. And waited. Can you picture that scene and, and, and see the irony of this, this whole thing? Inside the walls of Nineveh, the king sits in silence, in sackcloth and in ashes, hoping that his city will be spared from judgment. While outside the city, Jonah also sits in silence, but angry and sulking, hoping that God would destroy the city as he, Jonah, had said. Well, what happens? Well, God sends a plant to shade the angry prophet from the blazing sun, and the Bible tells us that Jonah was very pleased about that. But later, God sends a worm to eat that plant until it withers and could no longer provide shade. God also sends a scorching east wind that beat down hard on Jonah, and Jonah was not very pleased about that. He was so angry again that he wanted to die like my 10-year-old son will always or sometimes say about his classmates, huh? and Jonah had anger management issues. Anger management issues. He was angry at Nineveh, he was angry at the plant, he was angry at the worm, but most of all, he was angry at God. So, what lessons do we learn from Jonah chapter 3 and 4? I think that there are twin dangers that we should be aware of. That's also later on, as you will see, a double remedy. The twin dangers are prejudice and pride. What is is prejudice? Prejudice is a blind spot. We form an opinion of something or someone. We have a perspective. We have a worldview that refuses to change or that is hard to change. And we reject anything or anyone that does not into that perspective, just like the fisherman who threw away any fish bigger than seven inches because the fish does not fit his frying pan. For centuries, people believed that this wise man, this great intellectual called Aristotle was right when he said that the heavier an object, the faster it would fall to the earth. Aristotle was regarded as the greatest thinker of all time. And surely, he can't be wrong. right? Many generations grew up believing what he taught, But it's very easy to prove or disprove it, right? You just take two objects from a high place and you just drop them simultaneously. One heavier than the other, just drop them simultaneously to the ground and see which one comes first or hits the ground first. Unfortunately, no one did that. No one did that to prove or disprove what Aristotle said. Until 2,000 years after Aristotle's death in 1589, a guy called Galileo, he summoned very learned people, all the learned professors of science and physics, to the, leaning, to the base of the leaning tower of pizza. Then he went to the top and he pushed off a 10-pound weight and a 1-pound weight. And both landed at the same time. The power of belief was so strong, however, that these professors who witnessed this experiment denied that they saw it. They continued to say that Aristotle was right. In other words... They were prejudiced. There are many other instances, other instances of prejudice in the Bible. The Jews looked down on the Samaritans because they were half brothers who lived in the Northern Kingdom. They were also Jews, but they were part Jews, right? They lived in the Northern Kingdom, and after the conquest of Israel, the Northern Kingdom by the Assyrians. They intermingled among the Assyrians, with this, all these pagan Assyrians, and messed up their own religion. And so Jesus' disciples were amazed when they found him talking one day to a Samaritan woman at the well. In the story in John chapter 4, and it was a triple whammy because one, she was a Samaritan. That was bad, right? You're a half Jew. You're a corrupt Jew. Number two, she was a woman which had no status at that time. And number three, she was a prostitute. So each of these was taboo at the time. But together, it was terrible. And the disciples were scandalized. The disciples were scandalized. Another example. In Acts chapter 10, the apostle Peter had a vision of a white... It's about noontime. He had a vision of a white cloth coming down from heaven with all kinds of animals. And those animals were... What the Bible in Old Testament times called ritually unclean, in other words, you don't eat them, you don't touch them because they are unclean, all right you should have nothing to do with those creatures and Peter heard a voice from heaven calling out to him, "Rise, Peter, kill and eat, kill and eat." This was about noon time, so he was hungry and he and that happened not once, not twice, but three times you know for for centuries the Jews Thought that the world was divided into two camps, us and them. The us was special. They were chosen by God. They were recipients of the law of Moses. They were home of the prophets. And to the Jews and even to the early Christians, Gentiles, the people who are non-Jews, were people outside the grace of God. They were unenlightened. They were excluded from God's revelation and they were undeserving. And Jesus Christ came as Messiah to redeem Israel. All non Jews were Gentiles, were ignorant, unclean, therefore to be avoided at all costs. And even the early Christians who were close to Jesus could not, even after they received the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2, could not conceive of the notion that Israel, special though it was, was merely a means to an end and not the end in itself. And what was the end? The end was to use Israel as a blessing to the nations. And so the Apostle Peter had to be taught this lesson, that his prejudices were shocked out of his head by this vision that God gave to him. And so it was with Jonah. Jonah was probably uh, uh, what you call a, a Jewish uh, nationalist, hyper-nationalist. He did not want to go to Nineveh because he knew God would have mercy on his enemies. He did not want their repentance. He wanted their doom. He was a hardliner. And God was just too soft. Prejudices can run very deep and sometimes have terrible, terrible results. About three weeks ago, in February the 10th, 2015, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, USA. 23-year-old dental student, Dia Barakat, his 21-year-old wife, Yusso Abu Salha, and her 19-year-old sister, Razan, were shot dead by a 46-year-old American called Craig Hicks in an incident that shocked USA and shocked the world. The police in their preliminary investigations said that the incident was a result of a parking argument between Craig Hicks and that family. But later reports painted a picture of Craig Hicks as an atheist, one who rejects all notion that there is such a thing as a god. And he was full of anger and resentment at religious people. He was a hardliner and he was a hater of Muslims. The New York Times reported that Mr Hicks appeared to have a deep, deep dislike of all religion. On his Facebook page, nearly all of his posts expressed support for atheism, criticized Christian conservatives, or did both. And in January this year, he posted a photograph that said, praying is pointless, useless, narcissistic, arrogant, lazy, just like the imaginary God you pray to. Why do we have prejudices? Why do we harbour prejudices? Why did the Jews consider the Gentiles and Samaritans as inferior? Why did Craig Higgs hold such murderous thoughts, murderous views of these three young Muslims in Chapel Hill? And apparently, newspaper reports said all three were born in USA, so they were very localised and they were doing great things. They were exemplary students, great conduct, they were doing a lot of social work within the community and were well loved by the people in the community. Why did Craig Higgs do such a terrible thing. The root of prejudice is always pride and self-righteousness. It's a stubborn and unyielding sense of our own superiority or higher moral position. I'm right. The rest of you are wrong. I'm a bit ashamed to say this, and I'll tell you the reason in a minute why I'm ashamed, but I am a fan, I still am, uh, of Arsenal Football Club. Now, if you follow the English Premier League matches, you will realise that Arsenal is an underachiever, one of the greatest underachievers of all time. Because they've got this wealth of attacking talent, right? All the great soccer players from Germany, from, uh, from France, from, from Spain, and all that, all congregating. But they underachieve. Again and again and again, they just lost a match against uh, Monaco in the Champions League, at home, three-one. <laughs> I've read numerous reports and comments about their manager. His name is Arsene Wenger. Uh, he's a French, but he's been coach of Arsenal for like I don't know, long time. And Arsene Wenger had his 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 approach, his his coaching tactics, his approach to soccer games, and apparently many people say that it's. It's always the same. it's possession based, it's passing football. If you watch these games, it's actually quite nice. you know. You see them have intricate passing movements, one, two, two, three, not accounting. Unfortunately, it doesn't work. It doesn't work right Against disciplined teams who watch them, they know how to exploit the weakness. it doesn't work, so they lose. I play the way I like. I don't care who the opponents are. That's my philosophy, Mr. Wenger says. Some people think that Mr Wenger, who's been the manager of Arsenal for the longest time, probably one of the longest managers in the whole English Premier League, has become so stubborn and so proud and so unyielding that he has become blind to his own shortcomings. And as a Jew, Jonah probably considered himself of a higher class of a special status compared to the heathen people in Nineveh. And in his pride, Jonah probably thought that he had God all figured out. God is holy, and the holy God cannot tolerate sin. Sin brings punishment. And maybe the Ninevites were all sinners, you know. For all you know, they could be like what Psalm 10 talks about of the heathen people, that they hunt down the weak, they are boastful, they bless the greedy, they revile the Lord, they are full of lies and threats, they ambush the innocent, and murder them, they crush their victims. All the terrible things that they do. So the Ninevites were like that. They were sinners. Therefore, they should be punished. Everything is very black and white. And this conception of God was boxed in by his own limited understanding. But it was too small a view of God. For Jonah, God was a God justice. But you also forgot that God justifies the ungodly through His boundless mercy and His abundant grace. Uh, Theologians, people who study theology and and, 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 uh, uh, learn about the things of God, describe one of God's attributes as transcendent. Big word transcendent. I think there's a movie called Transcendent, if I'm not wrong. But the definition of transcendent is not what the movie says. Uh, Isaiah 59, 55 verse 9 tells us, and this is to me how the Bible looks at a transcendent God. His thoughts are above our thoughts, and His ways are above our ways. In other words, you cannot figure God out 100%. Otherwise, God will not be God. And so before this awesome and transcendent God, prejudice and pride has no place. So what is the remedy for the twin dangers of pride and prejudice? Two things, pity and patience. We cannot show pity or mercy if we are proud and prejudiced, but we can do so if and when we remember that God took pity on us and was very, very patient with us. God took pity on Nineveh. Jonah chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. And the Lord said to Jonah, You pity the plant for which you did not labour, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should not I... Pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Jonah's approach to Nineveh was this. The city was wicked, should be punished. God's approach to Nineveh was this. The city had repented and should be spared. But God did not just show pity to Nineveh. He also showed pity to Jonah, by gently correcting him and being immensely patient with him. He delivered Jonah from the raging seas by sending this deliverance in the form of a whale or creature. He caused a plant to shade him from the heat outside the city of Nineveh, and he reasoned with Jonah. He sat down and he reasoned with Jonah. He did not rebuke him or chide him as God did to Job and his friends, if you read in the book of Job. So the remedy to the twin dangers of pride and prejudice is and always will be to remember God's pity and patience toward us because a sense of gratitude will keep us from pride and prejudice. According to a traditional Hebrew story, Abraham was sitting outside his tent one evening when he was an old man, Uh, sorry, when he saw an old man Uh, weary from age and a long journey, coming toward him. And as it is in those days uh, where the people showed a lot of hospitality, Eastern hospitality, Abraham rushed out, greeted him, and then invited him into his tent. There he washed the old man's feet and gave him food and drink. The old man immediately began eating without saying any prayer or blessing. So Abraham asked him, Don't you worship God? And the old traveler replied, I worship fire only and reverence no other God. When he heard this, Abraham became incensed. He grabbed the old man by the shoulders and threw him out of the tent into the cold air night, cold night air. And when the old man had departed, God called to his friend Abraham and asked where the stranger was. And Abraham replied, I forced him out because he did not worship you. God answered, I have suffered him this 80 years, although he dishonours me. Could you not endure him one night? I don't know about you, but I have some people in my life, in my workplace, uh, among my contacts, for whom I have developed some kind of aversion. Dislike, lah, in other words. Maybe some prejudice. Lah. Thankfully, No resentment yet. Not yet. Some are non-Christians. Some are Christians. The issue is not whether my prejudice or resentment is justified. That's not a point. The issue is whether, like Jonah, I let that prejudice, that resentment, blind me to God's grace and mercy. Jonah was prejudiced against the Ninevites and became impatient with God. These sinners defy you, they worship idols and they worship hidden gods. They they always are perpetuating injustice and get away with murder. And 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 sometimes worse still, they prosper. They are in good health, they are rich, they are successful, they they look like, you know, the kind of people that you, you love to hate. You know, the president scholars, those people who can't do wrong, top positions, very clever, very smart, great sportsmen, they do everything right. Leaders, prefect, head prefect. Ah, really, tahan. <laughs> what kind of God are you? you know? Why, why are you so unfair? Why, why is there so much unfairness? So an angry Jonah gets out of Nineveh and he sulks. He sulks. This angry man sulks. Does that, does that remind you of anybody in the New Testament who owes pride and his self-righteous anger? get in the way and he goes out like Jonah to sulk. The New Testament Jonah is the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. I think you're familiar with the parable. And the lesson of that parable is the same lesson as the book of Jonah. At least one of the lessons of the parable is the same lesson as the book of Jonah. The younger brother squanders all his father's wealth in immoral living and heads for home because he's lost it all. And all the while, the older brother has been thinking of how superior he is to this black sheep of the family, how much he deserves from his father. But when this good-for-nothing brother comes home, what happens? The father puts a ring on his finger, a coat on his back, he kills the best car for him, and he throws a great party. Then the older brother hears about it, and what does he do? He refuses to go in, to join the party. He's angry that the father has shown mercy. Just like Jonah outside Nineveh, the elder brother sulks outside the father's house and he becomes resentful. He was resentful towards this good-for-nothing brother of his, but maybe, maybe he was even more resentful towards his father. Luke chapter 15, verses 23 to 32. I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he didn't say my brother, he said, this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours uses the same phrase was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found you know brothers and sisters friends i i don't know about you but but do you see the father's heart in those words when we see the father's heart and his all-embracing love, there is really no place for prejudice, for blind spots, for aversion, for dislikes, for resentment. No place for pride. Because really everything we have, all we are, our very lives, come as gifts from His loving hands. Can I ask the musicians to come forward and we will sing the closing song, The Stand. Let's all rise.
1: You stood before my failures, carried the cross for my shame. My sea-waded boat, your shores, my soul now to stay. So what could I say?
0: whether, as you think about them, whether there are any issues, any prejudices that you might have harbored, any aversion, any dislike, and then you struggle with that because you know that how can a Christian not love others? How can we secretly wish bad things on other people? because they've hurt us or they have done something that we think is not right and we pass judgment on them. How can can it be? How can we have such thoughts? How can we have such emotions of dislike of others? And can can I just encourage you if you do have those struggles, I do too, just lay it before the Lord and ask Him now to deal with it. allow the Holy Spirit to just minister to you and to just remind all of us of his pity his mercy his grace his compassion it's a compassion that just does not save Nineveh or relents of the judgement that he can rightly pronounce on the city and can rightly put forth for the city and the people there but it is a a mercy and a a pity that He puts upon you and me. Remember the thief on the cross, lifetime of sin, a criminal. And yet when the Lord Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise, that confession has wiped out, that single confession at the point of death has wiped out his entire lifetime of sin because he confessed Jesus on the cross. That can be true of all of us as well. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts. You know that as Christians, we try to live for you. But we also know that there are many times that we fail. And one of the big failings that we have in our lives is the fact that, Lord, we do not know how to love the unlovable. We do not know how to love our enemies. Quote, unquote. We sometimes judge them we sometimes show our displeasure with people that we find do not belong to our clique we avoid them lord forgive us lord you have reminded us that as you bring the rain to shine upon the godly and the ungodly the just and the unjust you have commanded us to love our enemies because we were once enemies with god but you have Break, broken down the barriers and you have bridged the big gulf between us. And so now you have called us friends of God, children of Almighty God. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for this status that we have as your people. And we ask that your love will so constrain us and embrace us that when we go out of this place, this coming week, Lord, that we will be able to share this love and this compassion with those people around us. Thank you for your pity and your mercy upon us. We do not deserve it, Lord but inasmuch as you show it to us undeserving though we be help us Lord to show it to those around us and to bring them into your kingdom as well thank you for hearing our prayers in Jesus name Amen Just uh, an announcement that today is the first of March so there's lunch catered at the first floor so please uh, join us for lunch on the first level thanks
1: was astounding Love is an ocean; you can drown me. The sweet embrace, the lovely taste, I taste the sea. I'm under grace, the place to be. It means I'll never need an umbrella. I'm cool in the cold in the hot weather, whether or never I ever. Understand, I'm a man in the hands of great plans. I stand with faith, and in the life i never known to touch. And still I stop my clutch, but I'm like, what's the dream of? What's the hope in? What's the doubt for? Live to no end. This is living. The life i been given so no is give as a gift. If I'm a living, I'm a living to death. So what's the dream of? What's the hope in? What's the doubt for? And Live to no end. This is living. The life I'm given is a gift. If I'm a living. We're living life.